Lecture 21, Daily Life in the 13th Century. Welcome back. We left off in the last lecture, somewhat in suspense, about what's going to happen in England at the end of King John's reign. There's a civil war raging. There's a French army on English soil. And I know you want to find out what happens next, but you're going to have to wait because I want to pause during this lecture to take one of our breaks from the narrative of political events. The last time we took such a break, we looked at Arthurian literature and courtly love, and certainly at that point in the 12th century, that was very much a preoccupation of the elite, of the nobles and the courtiers who lived in the kind of world where people would have time to sit around listening to this kind of literature. Being performed today, I want to take a very different sort of detour. I want to look again at daily life, ordinary, everyday life in all of its complexity, and we're going to try to see how it's changed in the years since the Norman Conquest. So today, daily life in the 13th century. Now, England is still overwhelmingly rural in this period, but one central fact to note is that there are a lot more people than before. English population grew substantially between the period of Doomsday Book and the 13th century. At the time of Doomsday Book, there were probably about two million people in England. By 1300, it was more like four or five million. These numbers are very approximate, and living standards are going up at the same time that population is rising. So that's a lot of economic growth behind that. Now I'm going to talk about growth a little bit later in the lecture, but we're going to start. On the local level and work up, so we're going to start with life in the most basic building block of English society, the village. Now, for the vast majority of people in England, you're going to spend most of your time in your village. And I explained when we talked about Doomsday Book that villages might or might not be the same as a manor. In other words, you might have one lord in charge of a whole village. Or the village might be divided between two or more lords, or you might have a very large manor that had more than one village in it. The manor is a legal entity; the village is a social entity. It's a social reality on the ground. But both manor and village are economic entities in that a manor is organized for the economic benefit of the lord, and the village is organized for the economic convenience of the villagers. That's all of that negotiating I talked about、uh, with plowing different strips of land. But a lot of times, the village and the manor are the same, and it's always a bit easier for the historian when that is the case. Now, historians love manors because manors had courts, and especially from the 13th century on, we have records of these courts, and they can tell us a lot about life on these manors. And these records are called court rolls because they're sewn end to end and stored in rolls, just like the pipe rolls of the exchequer that we talked about before. The records are kept in a very highly abbreviated Latin, and it takes a lot of training to learn how to read these records today. But once you do, you can find out a lot of great stuff. The courts would be held at regular intervals, usually every three weeks or so. And at these courts, you would handle any disputes that arose on the manor, and they would be presided over by the lords' officials on the manor. And one of the most interesting things that we can see in the records is the fact that there is an active market in land 
on these manors. And we can see this as far back as our records go. So this might have started much earlier, maybe in the 12th century. And these land transactions would be formally recorded in the manor court rolls. And there were many types of land transactions, and I want to talk about two of these. The first is very interesting from a social point of view. You see a lot of cases where the older generation in a family is transferring ownership of their property to the younger generation. These are older people handing over responsibility for the farm to their adult children. A really fascinating part of these transactions is that there are strings attached. The parents are retiring, effectively, but they want support in their retirement. So these agreements spell out in great detail exactly what obligations the adult children have towards their parents. And for that reason, historians call these transactions maintenance agreements. And the agreements will often specify exactly where the older people will live. There might be provision that a small cottage will be built for them and the children will take over the main house. Often you get details about how they're going to be fed and clothed. And the really intriguing thing is, why are these agreements necessary? Clearly, a lot of parents felt they might have a reason to worry that if they handed everything over to their kids and they don't have any legal guarantees, they're going to be left out in the cold. Maybe they've seen that happen to a neighbor, and they aren't going to take any chances. Now, the second type of transaction that you see in the court rolls is uh, a lot more mundane, but it's very important for getting a sense of what life is like on these manors. What you see is uh, some families trading up and some families trading down. You see families forced to sell all or part of their land, and you see other families buying up land and accumulating larger and larger holdings. And the result over time is that these village societies end up being economically stratified. Now, we don't know for sure if there ever was a time when everybody in the village held about the same amount of land. But certainly by the 13th century, when we can look at this in detail, there are winners and there are losers. Now, let me run through this village hierarchy briefly from top to bottom. At the top, you have the most prosperous villagers. They might hold farms of maybe 100 acres or more. One way they may have gotten together the money to buy all this extra land may be that they served the lord of the manor, maybe as a reeve. This is the local officials uh, that we talked about before. There were many ways to make a little extra money if you're a reeve. Not all of these make you popular, but you can end up with enough money to buy more land. And then you can hire your poorer neighbors to help you work that land. So these rich villagers are going to be the employers of other villagers. Now below this top layer, there's the vast middle. And these families might hold maybe 40 acres or so. That's enough to feed themselves and also to employ maybe one or two servants. Underneath this layer were the cottagers. They would have a tiny plot of land. They could live on it but it wouldn't generate enough food or income to support them. So they would be the ones to hire themselves out to the richer villagers. And finally, at the absolute bottom, there are landless laborers. They have to find a home with their employers. And they can be quite rootless. They might travel far and wide in search of employment. So that's the social hierarchy in the typical village. And 
I must say this is a generalization. It holds true for many of the villages that are devoted to arable farming, that is to growing crops. The social organization in the pastoral areas of England where dwellings are scattered much more widely, that's going to be quite a bit looser. Now, the interesting thing about this social hierarchy that I've laid out is that it's not necessarily the same as the legal status of the people concerned. And this is really an odd fact. I think it's hard for modern people to get this. But the legal status of a peasant in England in the 13th century and the economic status of that peasant are not necessarily the same. That is, you can have an unfree peasant who's very rich. And conversely, you can have a free peasant who's very poor. Let me try to explain how this worked. By this point in England, all people are either free or unfree. Now, being unfree doesn't mean you're a slave. Slavery is pretty much gone by the 13th century. By this point, you're either a serf or you're free. You're either tied to the manor, that's a serf, or you're not. And this is certainly much simpler than the situation we saw at the time of Doomsday Book. At that point, there are lots of different degrees of freedom and unfreedom. Now, one thing, one reason why things are clearer by the 13th century has to do with the legal reforms of Henry II. Once people are flocking to the royal courts, this is something that he wanted to encourage, it becomes important to know exactly who has the right to use these courts because it's very clear that only free men are allowed to. So there's a big incentive to clarify if people are free or not. And in these years, there's a lot of litigation about whether certain people are free or not. It matters to people to establish that they're free. It has a legal importance, but it also has a symbolic importance. Um, and in practical terms, it can get you out of a lot of very nasty obligations if you can prove that you're free. Unfree peasants are often obliged to do the worst work on the manor. They have to work more, they have to work more days, and they have to do the degrading jobs, like spreading manure. So it's definitely better to be free. So in one sense, things are less complicated than the time of Doomsday Book, but wait, things in medieval England are never simple. They're just complicated in different ways. Because land can have a status just like people. Land can be either free or unfree. Free land doesn't owe obligations to a lord, whereas servile land does. So when you bought a piece of land, this is one of the things you definitely want in the disclosure statement. Is this land free or servile? And what obligations might we owe if we take this land on? And the fact that you have people of different status and land of different status, and the fact that you have a very active market in land, this could lead to some very interesting complications. You might have a free peasant who has bought some servile land. So he doesn't personally owe any labor services, but his land might. So he'd have to make sure that they're fulfilled by somebody, either by himself or by somebody he hires. Conversely, you might have a rich serf who has bought some free land, and he owns it free and clear with no obligations. Now, this is all probably fairly clear to the people involved, but it's rather confusing to us. 
And I do think that this confusion of statuses is perhaps one reason why we're going to see the whole system break down over the next few centuries. And serfdom is pretty much going to disappear by the end of the period we're covering in the course. It's probably not the only reason. It's certainly not the most important one why this happens. More on that to come. For right now, I want to talk a little bit about life in these villages. Now, we've already established that they're very, it's very complex. We're not dealing with an undifferentiated mass of peasants. They're not all toiling at the same rate. One central fact about life in this period is that it can be dangerous and often even quite violent. Now, this is not a big change from earlier periods. We talked about this when we looked at Anglo-Saxon evidence from cemeteries, for instance. But for the 13th century, we've got much more detailed evidence. We don't have to rely only on archaeology. We can't just look at the evidence of a skull fracture and try to figure out how it happened. Oftentimes, we can read about how it happened. And that's because we have a new kind of record in the 13th century. In 1194, the office of coroner was created, and it was created to investigate suspicious deaths. The coroners kept records, and as you might suspect, they're called coroner's rolls. And in these rolls, you get lots of details about how English men and women and children, about how they met their untimely ends. Now, one of the striking things about these coroner's rolls is the very high incidence of manslaughter. The rate of manslaughter is really very high. And often these incidents are unpremeditated acts, but sometimes there seem to have been very long-standing feuds that lie behind them. This is a culture that has not entirely abandoned self-help methods of resolving disputes. For example, we have records from the royal courts of a case in Somerset in 1258 in which somebody was killed while attacking another party in a dispute over land, and this stretched back many years. It started with one side impounding the other side's cattle, and over the years it escalated and it ultimately resulted in manslaughter. But there are also a striking number of accidents recorded in the coroner's roles, and many of these involve young children. And it's important to keep in mind, this is an agricultural society. Both parents are often busy from morning to night. The, the tasks don't end. Often, small children seem to have been allowed to fend for themselves without a whole lot of supervision. And the coroner's rolls are full of children who fall in ditches that are full of rainwater and they drown, or they're trampled by beasts when they accidentally wander into a paddock. And there are lots of really horrible cases. Uh, children are burned by the fire in the family hearth. There aren't any fancy hearth screens in those days, and children could and did literally fall into the fire and burn to death. Now, what sort of consolation might be available to the parents if such a disaster befell them? They'd probably turn to their parish church, because that's the center of village life. And parish churches are actually fairly new in most parts of England in this period. Back in the Anglo-Saxon period, you'll remember, you mostly had large minster churches, and they served a wide area around them. But starting in the very late Anglo-Saxon period, you start to get smaller churches being built to serve smaller areas. And this picks up quite a bit after the Norman Conquest. 
Often the initiative for this comes from the local lord because there can be very valuable economic rights associated with churches. People have to pay tithes to churches, for example, a, a tenth part of their produce, and that is supposed to support the work of the priest in the church. In reality, some of that money goes to the lord of the church. But these new parish churches are very, very popular. They're staffed by priests, and these priests often live very much like their parishioners. As we've seen before, they're often married, either officially or increasingly unofficially, and they usually farm the land attached to the church. So for much of the week, the priest might be doing a lot of the same tasks as his neighbors are doing. But on Sundays, the church is the social hub of the village. After worship, there would be social gatherings of all kinds at the church, and we know that these could get a little rowdy on occasion. Uh, a certain amount of ale tended to be consumed. And this wouldn't just happen on Sundays because there were many feast days when there was supposed to be a rest from labor, celebrations of various saints. Officially, there were about 100 of these, but they were not all observed in every parish. Still, there's a lot of celebrating going on. And the church would have been the site for baptisms, for weddings, for funerals, all sorts of other rituals that are central to the life of the village. Now, the proliferation of parish churches, that's actually a sign of economic growth, and it's one sign of many. Life is generally improving in this period. It's not getting better for everybody. It's not improving at the same rate for everybody. We saw that, that we have winners and losers on the manors. But the trend is definitely upward on a material level. And this has to do, first and foremost, with the economy. It's growing, and it's becoming more specialized and more commercialized. Of course, it's still overwhelmingly based on agriculture. So if the agricultural sector is doing well, everything else is going to do well, too. And one factor that helps a lot is the weather in the 13th century. It's generally pretty favorable, and it might even have been better in the 12th century. It looks as though the temperatures then were at their warmest, and this was actually a good thing in terms of crop yields, but the 13th century is still very good. It's not too wet, it's not too dry, and that's really crucial if you're trying to grow cereal crops. They're very sensitive to uh, fluctuations in rainfall. Now, this is not to say that everything always went well. Every few years, there would still be crop failures, and during those years, there could be a lot of suffering. But in the 13th century, you don't see a lot of large-scale dearth, where you have lots of people dying of hunger. It's a pretty good time. And agriculture is shifting its focus in England. Previously, a lot of agriculture is basically oriented toward subsistence, although there's also always the need to come up with a little bit of of money, some cash crops to pay for taxes and other expenses. But starting in the 12th century and going into the 13th, you begin to see farmers reorient their efforts. They're producing crops more for the market. You begin to see regional specialization. Now, one very interesting way that you can trace this shift is the fact that on a lot of English farms, there's a changeover from oxen to horses as draft animals. Now, remember in Doomsday Book how the teams of oxen are a very big deal? You wanted to know how many teams of oxen are there on an estate? They're a measure of wealth. How many teams do you have? Well, oxen are very strong. They're stronger than horses, but they're not very fast. If you want an animal that can multitask, an animal that can 
plow your fields one day and then turn around and pull a cart with produce in it to market the next day, you want a horse. Now, these are going to be big, strong horses. Not a delicate lady's riding horse, but something a little like a Clydesdale, probably. But a horse can get you to a market that's maybe 10 miles away and get you back on the same day. An ox can't do that. So we can tell that when English farmers are getting rid of oxen and taking up horses, they're producing with an eye to the market. They're willing to give up a little drawing power in exchange for the flexibility that horses have to offer. And this makes sense because we know that there are more and more markets to draw your produce to with your brand new horses. Between the Norman Conquest and the 1220s, 125 towns were founded in England. That means places that were deliberately planned in advance as towns that are going to be the centers of trade. These would have been the largest areas where goods changed hands. But there were many smaller markets throughout the country. And these increased in number tremendously as well. We know something about the numbers because they had to be licensed. You'll remember that licensing markets was one of the few roles that the English kings played in the economy. Between 1199 and 1272, the kings licensed about 770 markets. And that's half of the total number of markets that existed in the whole Middle Ages. So this is a huge upsurge. There's also a huge increase in the number of fairs in that same period between 1199 and 1272. During that period, 920 new fairs are established. Now what's the difference between a market and a fair? A market is something that happens every week at a certain place on a certain day. And there was actually a lot of controversy in this period over whether you could have a market on a Sunday. There were some people agitating against Sunday trading. A fair, on the other hand, happens once a year, usually over a number of days. Often it was associated with the feast day of a certain saint. And churches were often the sponsors of these fairs. So the fair would be named after their patron saint. And of course, the church got to keep a portion of the proceeds of the fair. Now, one of these fairs is particularly interesting because it gave us a word that we probably use without ever thinking that it comes from medieval England. The monks of Ely held a fair every year in June for their saint, St. Audrey. And at this fair, it was customary to sell necklaces of silk and lace. And these were often pretty shabby things. They got a reputation for being pretty low class. And so from St. Tawdry, we get our word tawdry. And that applies to anything kind of cheap and tired. But I think the fact that you could even get a phenomenon like this, and it becomes so widely known that it enters the language, that's a sign of how important these fairs are. The English economy is clearly becoming much more commercialized than it had been a few centuries before. And one way you can trace this growth in commercialization is with the increasing circulation of money. Between 1086 and 1300, the increase in the money supply in England is about 24-fold. That means many, many more people are coming into contact with money on a regular basis. 
And as a result, there's a shift in the way money is being minted. We are long past the days where you have individual moneyers who are set up as lone entrepreneurs striking one coin at a time. Maybe the fate of the moneyers under Henry I had something to do with that. By the 13th century, most coins are being minted in two big central mints at London and Canterbury. And they're in those locations largely because of the need to change money coming in from foreign merchants, which is another sign of economic growth. You actually have to have currency exchange. Another change in the coinage system that takes place in 1279 is the first minting of small change. Up until now, the only coins in circulation are silver pennies. That's a pretty valuable coin. You can't just pay for a drink in a tavern with a silver coin. Small-scale transactions are still being done by barter. But in 1279, the government begins minting half pennies and farthings. Okay, that's worth half a penny or a quarter of a penny. Farthing comes from the fourth part of a penny. And this makes it a lot easier to conduct everyday transactions by means of coins. Probably still not a drink in a tavern, but certainly you can do a lot more things with coins than you could before. Most transactions using coins are more wholesale than retail. And the most important industry that would have needed to engage in those transactions is the wool industry. So far I've talked almost exclusively about life in arable regions of England. And of course we have to keep in mind there's not a hard and fast distinction. There's not a, a border between the two zones. There are areas of mixed agriculture where you have some sheep raising and some growing of crops. But in this period you really see pastoral areas begin to come into their own. You start to see the raising of wool on a large scale. And that is ultimately going to transform the English economy. One of the biggest engines of this transformation is an order of monks known as the Cistercians. They had a lot of monasteries in the north of England, and that was very good sheep raising country. And they organized their grazing lands very efficiently. They pioneered good breeding techniques, and other landowners borrowed these techniques. And soon England is producing huge quantities of raw wool for export to the Low Countries, where it's going to be woven into finished cloth. So wool is by far the most important export from England throughout this period. Now life in the wool growing regions is different from life in the arable areas in certain ways. Settlements are smaller, more scattered. Parish churches might be scarcer and understaffed. Contact with the royal administration is a lot more sporadic. So these areas could be quite a bit rougher than the more settled villages. But as the wool trade expands, they do partake of the general rise in prosperity in 13th century England. Now, one important thing that goes along with these economic changes, uh, the increase in markets and fairs, the increase in coinage and trade, is that people's horizons are expanding. Most villages are within a day's walk of one of these weekly markets. You might have to walk a little farther to get to a, a yearly fair, but again, most English people would have been able, if they chose, to attend at least one of these, and they could buy themselves some small luxuries, maybe pins or maybe some tawdry lace. It would even be possible for many Englishmen, at least a few times in their lives, to travel to one of the larger towns, maybe one of the cathedral cities. 
So let me say a few words about cathedrals. It's a vast subject. I can't possibly do justice to it in a course of this kind. But I want to talk about the social and economic context for cathedrals. By the 13th century, there are some two dozen cathedrals in England. Most of them are in thriving towns. And this is not entirely an accident. Bishops bring with them a lot of apparatus that needs support. So bishops are engines of job creation in and of themselves. But a lot of the cathedral cities of England by the 13th century have actually been chosen because they're flourishing towns. Back in the Anglo-Saxon period, there had been a trend to make cathedrals more monastic. At that time, bishops are looking for cathedrals to be places of retirement. But a lot of the new Norman bishops who came in after the conquest are far less interested in that. They want to be where the action is. And so you actually see the transfer of some Episcopal sees from small towns to larger towns. In the late 11th century, for example, the bishopric of Elmham in East Anglia is moved to Norwich. Norwich is by far the most important town in that part of England. And in some instances, bishops could literally make or break the economic fortunes of a town. The Bishop of Salisbury in the early 13th century got fed up with the site on which his cathedral stood. He thought it was too cramped. It was right next to a royal castle on top of a hill, and there was no room to expand. He moved the cathedral a few miles away to the banks of the Avon River, and a new town grew up around the new cathedral. And the settlement around the abandoned cathedral withered and died away. And you can still visit the ruined site today. So the 13th century is a great age for English cathedrals. There had always been, already been a huge boom in cathedral building after the conquest. That's when you saw a lot of Romanesque-style architecture. Usually it's called Norman in the English context because it's closely associated with the change of regime. That style is characterized by massive columns, very solid forms. It's almost fortress-like. Then in the 12th century, you see the Gothic style arriving from Paris. And at first, English Gothic is basically derivative of French forms. But then you see distinctive forms of English Gothic developing. The style of the 13th century is called Early English, and it's very graceful, very delicate, very restrained. Later in the 13th century and into the early 14th century, you get a style known as Decorated Gothic. And the name really does say it all. There's a lot more figurative carving, very naturalistic in style and you see very elaborate vault ribbing on the ceilings. Finally, in the 1330s, you get the last major architectural style, Perpendicular Gothic. And again, the name says it all. There's a strong emphasis on uninterrupted upward lines. And on the ceilings, you get beautiful, highly intricate fan vaulting. Literally, the ceiling looks like a fan that has been unfolded and extended. Now, all of this has to be paid for. And it's a measure of how uh, prosperity is increasing in England that it can be paid for relatively easily. And I say relatively because we do know that some bishops overreached themselves. They got into debt. And the number one culprit is building projects that were overly ambitious. Still, I think today we can all be grateful that some of these bishops went a little overboard with the fan vaulting. Now, we've painted a rather positive picture of life in the 13th century, at least from an economic and social point of view. That's a good thing, because we're going to return to the political narrative in the next lecture, and we'll see that much of the 13th century was dominated by a sweet but very silly king. Next time, Henry III.